0: Bye. Hello, and welcome to the fifth podcast of InfoSec Sync, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give
1: us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs
0: while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by the Van Dyke Technology Group. At Van Dyke, their work is focused on the performance and security of information systems of national impact. Optimize performance, maximize security. Experience the Van Dyke difference and visit them on the web at VDTG.com. Also
1: brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And now for Stories of the Week ending October 3rd, 2014. October is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. It was created as a collaborative effort between government and industry to ensure every American has the resources they need to stay safer and more secure online. Since its inception a decade ago under leadership from the US Department of Homeland Security and the National Cybersecurity Alliance, National Cybersecurity Awareness Month has grown exponentially, reaching consumers, small and medium-sized businesses, corporations, educational institutions and young people across the nation. This year they are celebrating the 11th year of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. For more information, visit staysafeonline.org. There is a plethora of information, resources and studies for anyone wanting to know how to stay safe online.
0: Absolutely and and Nick that's a very important thing. So please check that out staysafeonline.org. Um And now on to uh, some more stories of the week. Uh, More specifically, uh, let's start off with our favorite, right, Nick? Right. Shellshock. So um, as we all know, there's a bash vulnerability that's out there. It's uh, Shellshock. We did a special on it. So go ahead and check it out. It's on the website. Um, It's on the podcast. Uh, It covers how, um, why you should be concerned, how you can... Uh, uncover it within enterprise environments and test for it, and what you need to do to ensure that it's mitigated. So uh, just to go in more depth here and give you a little bit of a background, um, over the past few days, Apple, Red Hat, and others have pushed out patches to vulnerabilities in the GNU born-again shell um, bash. The vulnerabilities previously allowed attackers to execute commands remotely on systems that use the command parser under some conditions. Including web servers that use certain configurations of Apache. However, some of the patches made changes that broke the functionality of the GNU bash code, so now the debate continues on how to unfork the patches and better secure bash. At the same time, the urgency of applying those patches has mounted as more attacks exploit the weaknesses in bash's security, dubbed shell shock, that have appeared. In addition to the first threat, the threat first Spotted the day after the vulnerability was made public, a number of new attacks have emerged. While some appear to be vulnerability scans, there are also new exploits, uh, new exploit attempts that carry malware or attempt to give the attacker direct remote control of the targeted systems. On Monday, the SANS Technology Institute Internet Storm Center, ISC, evaluated, evaluated mm-hmm. its Infocon threat level, which is a measure of the danger level of the current Internet worms, and other threats based on Internet traffic to yellow. This level indicates an attack that poses a minor threat to the Internet's infrastructure as a whole with potentially significant impact on some systems. Johannes Ulrich, the dean of research at SANS, noted that six exploits based on shell shock have been recorded by the ISC servers, which is their honeypot systems. So that's uh, a virtual or physical Computer system set up to entice attackers and records their action, a honeypot or honey net. Three types of attacks recorded by the ISC were simply scans for the vulnerability. One ran checks using multiple hypertext transfer protocol headers to test the system would send back an internet protocol ping message using the bash exploit. Another attempted to send back system parameters such as the Unix name of the system, its operating system, inversion, and other details about the hardware. These may have been launched by a white hat security firm conducting surveys of vulnerable systems. The other three detected attacks, however, attempted to install or provide various means of remote control. Two attempted to install bots for remote control based on the Perl scripting language, while the third tried to open a Perl-based reverse shell, which is a remote control connection that calls back to a specific IP address which, in the version Ulrich pr- published, called back to a system with a Swedish IP address belonging to a virtual private network company. So, you're probably asking yourself, alright, we know what it is, so how can we fix it? Since the original Shellshock vulnerability was reported on September 24th by the National Institute of Standards and Technology's National Vulnerability Database, there have been five additional vulnerabilities reported in a bash. This is in addition to the two that we reported on, Uh, last week four of which have been rated as highly severe the latest which is CVE 2014-6278 just published um... is based on another underlying flaw in Bash's command parser but has not been fully disclosed as it is still under analysis so no severity has been um, assigned to that particular CVE yet there are a number of ways to currently block the shell shock attack and similar vulnerability exploits. Application firewall filters and network filters, for example, can be set to block requests that contain a signature for the attack, which is double quote, open parents, close parents, space, open bracket, double quote. And some operating systems distributions have implemented the fixes that attempt to blunt the attack vector. Red Hat product security researcher Florian Weimer developed an upstream patch that prevents network attacks against the Bash shell by changing how function naming happens, a recommendation that was endorsed by a number of security experts and researchers. That fix has also been rolled into Debian's latest patch, but it may break some software dependent on the Bash functions. Another patch, developed by NetBSD's Christos Zolas, which has also been incorporated into FreeBSD, turns off Bash's ability to import script functions from environmental variables by default. Apple has released a fix for Bash that addresses the shell shock vulnerability. Apple's patch takes a different route to accomplish essentially the same thing as Weimer's patch. In addition to adjusting the command parser code and its new implementation of Bash to detect the end of a function statement, the apple fix also requires a prefix and suffix for those exported functions. Those prefixes and suffixes eliminate the possibility of a malicious code or malicious commands being passed over by a web request or another network attack. Meanwhile, the debate continues on what additional changes to bash are required to fully secure it and repair the forks and code made by the various patches made by the various operating systems and distributions. Chet Ramey, the maintainer of GNU Bash, has continued to develop fixes to roll out through GNU source code distribution. Since Ramey is a volunteer, some have suggested setting up some sort of a tip bucket to send him donations for his efforts to patch the code.
1: Wow, Matt. So this uh, whole Bash vulnerability thing just keeps going on and on, and I guess we're going to hear a lot more within the next coming weeks.
0: I think that for the next 10 to 12 months, we'll probably be cleaning up after this. Wow. I mean. The thing is, once they release a patch, the patch has to be adopted. And you have some customers where they, you know, have bastion hosts, they have bastion enclaves that aren't directly connected, so you have to hand-port those over. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, th- that is a that is a very, you know, kind of a dismal 10 to 12 months, that estimate. I think, hopefully, you know, within the next uh, two to three We'll have a, a fine-tuned patch out there that's, you know, um, widely distributed by each of the distributions. You know, this is a, definitely an example of something that was free and open source that we all use, like GNU TLS, uh, OpenSSL. And unfortunately, you know, when you poke holes in that and you actually find a vulnerability that's widely used because it's free and open source, it's very detrimental. Because everyone wants a piece of it. Everybody wants a piece of it. So, um do you have anything else for us, Nick? I, I know we have a uh, we have a number of stories this week. So what is it? Something I think you were talking about Google earlier. Yeah. So in other words, Google shut down malicious web attacks
1: coming from a compromised advertising network on Friday, the 19th of September. The move follows a security firm's analysis that found the ad platform Zito, that's Zedo, that's Z E D O, serving up advertisements that attempted to infect the computers of visitors to major websites. In an attack that ended early Friday morning, visitors to Last.fm, the Times of Israel, and the Jerusalem Post ran the risk of their computers being infected as Zito redirected visitor systems to malicious servers. Because the advertisements hosted on Zito servers were distributed through Google's DoubleClick, the attack reached millions of potential victims. Jerome Segura, senior security researcher at Malwarebytes Labs, stated, Disturbing malware through legitimate advertising networks, a technique known as malvertising, has become an increasingly popular way to compromise the systems of consumers and workers alike. We see malvertising daily, but it normally affects sites with lower traffic, Segura said. Visitors to any site that hosted ads served up by the Zito platform could have been infected with a downloader known as Zermot, Z-E-R-M-O-T. Downloader programs are used by cybercriminals as the initial beachhead on computer systems, Infecting the machines and allowing other software, everything from spam sending bots to information stealing trojans, to be uploaded to the compromised device. While the attack was stopped early Friday morning when Google broke ties with Zito, Google confirmed that it took steps to stop the attack and that its servers were not compromised, but the company did provide details of its actions. And I quote, can't get into specifics, unfortunately, but our team did shut it down, a spokesperson for the company said in response to the questions. Zito did not respond to a request for an interview. Malvertising attacks have become a popular way to infect unsuspecting user systems. In late August, for example, software and services firm Fox IT alerted users that visitors to Oracle's Java.com, popular celebrity news site TMZ.com, art and illustration site DeviantArt, an international news site, ibtimes.com, could have been infected through malicious content served up by a compromised advertising network. The attacked used an exploit for Java, ironic, considering Java owner Oracle's site was impacted by the rogue advertisements. Combating this malvertising technique is hard due to the large layered setup of the bidding platforms currently in place. It can be a malicious advertiser three layers down in the chain, but it can also be on the first level, Fox IT stated in its analysis of the late August attack. Trust is the company, I'm sorry, trust is the current system many advertisers use, but it seems to be insufficient for today's malvertising campaigns and techniques. A new system needs to be implemented in order to combat them. The most recent abuse of an advertising network appears to have ended. While it's uncertain how many web users may have been impacted by the Zito attack, malware Malwarebytes' Segura put the number of users that likely encountered a malicious advertisement in the millions. Quote, We rarely see attacks on a large scale like this, so we highly recommend that people keep their systems up to date with current antivirus and anti-malware protection, he stated in his analysis.
0: So yeah, malvertising is... Big money. It's big, big money. It's big money, so it's something that's out there. I mean, we also have cross-site request forgery, CSRF, among some other things, clickjacking, jacking, et cetera, et cetera. So that's something that we definitely need to look out for. So um, I guess the next, we do have a couple of other stories. What I want to get into right now is, um, since I just got my iPhone 6 Plus, very happy at that. So y'all, how do you, how do you uh, think my new iPhone 6 Plus looks in the studio in person here? wow i think it looks sexy
2: i like it man um some people were saying that the screen may be too big but uh i think it's right right on par
0: yeah um however there are some things lurking beneath the surface here and we're going to get into that so um there was an ios 7 one exploit which as you know the 6 plus and the 6 ship with 8 so if you have a 4s 5 5s you need to be aware of this iphones look good but you got to look at what's beneath the surface oh so there's an ios 7.1 exploit for cve 2014 4377 which is a critical f- fall that's publicly available users which haven't upgraded their systems to the new apple ios 8 could be victims of a new ios 7.1 exploit targeting that cve vulnerability security experts at benamuse firm have discovered the availability online of The exploit kit which targets the vulnerability coded CVE2014-4377, a memory corruption issue in iOS's core graphics library. The exploitation of CVE2014-4377 could allow a threat actor to deliver a malformed PDF through the Safari browser and get victim to execute an arbitrary code which allow the attackers to gain complete control of the victim's device. The list of devices potentially affected by CVE2014-4377 is long. The iPhone, iPad, or iPod Touch that are still running the iOS 7.1 or is jailbroken is affected by this vulnerability. The vulnerability also affects Apple TV below um, version 7. Unfortunately, the exploit for the CVE2014-4377 was publicly disclosed on GitHub by a user called recently this exploit makes a device running iOS 7.1x vulnerable to potential hackers the Safari browser accepts the PDF as a native image format for the image HTML HTML tag and that means that visiting an HTML page in Safari can load multiple PDF files without the user being aware of it so I mean that's something that's definitely, uh, you have to look out for, I mean, with PDFs out there, it's no longer like sending faxes, right? With a fax, you're sending it to an endpoint, you know where it's going, but now when you're navigating the web pages, PDFs are being loaded left, right, and center through, uh, image HTML tags.
1: And they're, uh, being loaded without you even knowing they're being loaded sometimes. Even when you
0: know it's being loaded,
1: you don't see it being loaded.
0: <laughs> so they're dropping a fax on you. You don't even know. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> hey, so Matt, um, so I, I don't know if you listeners remember or not, but I went to um, Virginia Virginia Beach for an ethical hacking and countermeasures course, and I ate at this place called Jimmy John's, and their sandwiches are so awesome, but this week, guess what I found out, Matt? What's that, Nick? Their security's not that good. It
0: turns out they were breached. Their security is not as good as the sandwiches? (laughs) Not as good as the sandwiches. So, yeah, there's like a data breach, just like we've seen in the other... Home Depot or Neiman Marcus or any one of those. What
2: did they have? A salami attack? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that Vic. Oh, that Vic. So actually, so two, 216 uh, restaurants are potentially affected.
2: That's a lot of salami.
1: The restaurant chain Jimmy John's has confirmed a payment card data breach that affected about 216 of its locations in 40 states. Potentially exposed information includes card numbers and, in some cases, the cardholder's name, verification code, and or the card's expiration date. Information entered online, such as customer address, email, and password, remain secure, the company says. The Champaign, Illinois-based restaurant chain, which has more than 2,000 locations, did not reveal how many cards were potentially impacted. Jimmy John's has provided a list of every location impacted by the breach and the time span of each compromise. We have included the list in our show notes, so if you go to our show notes, you'll be able to see it. The fast food chain learned of a possible security breach on July 30th involving credit and debit card data at some of its locations. The company hired third-party forensics experts to assist with an investigation. Although its investigation is ongoing, the company says it appears that customer's payment card data was compromised after an intruder stole login credentials from its point-of-sale vendor and used the credentials to remotely access the point-of-sale systems at some corporate and franchise locations between June 16th and September 5th and install malware. The malware has been removed, the company reports. Jimmy John's has taken steps to prevent this type of event from occurring in the future, including installing encrypted swipe machines, implementing system enhancements, and reviewing its policies and procedures for its third-party vendors. The restaurant chain is offering affected individuals free identity protection services. It declined to provide additional information beyond what's posted on its website. So, Matt, it looks like they did their due diligence. They hired um, the forensics people. Um, they're taking steps per- to prevent this in the future with encrypted swipe machines. What do you think?
0: Yes, and it's much larger than we thought. What are you talking about? So, Signature Systems Incorporated is a point-of-sale vendor blamed for a credit and debit card breach involving some 216 Jimmy John's sandwich shop locations. They now say that the breach also may have jeopardized customer card num- numbers at nearly 100 other independent restaurants across oh, wow. the country that use its products. Earlier this week, Champaign, Illinois-based Jimmy John's confirmed suspicions first raised by its author on July 31st, 2014 that the hackers had installed card-stealing malware on cash registers at some of its store locations. Jimmy John said the intrusion, which lasted from June 16th to September 5th, 2014, occurred when hackers compromised the username and password needed to remotely administer the point-of-sale systems at 216 stores. Those point-of-sale systems were produced by Newton PA-based payments vendor Signature Systems. In a statement issued in the past 24 hours, again, this was what? Yesterday when we uh, gathered this information, um, Signature Systems released more information about the break-in, as well as a list of nearly 100 other stores, mostly small mom-and-pop eateries and pizza shops, that were compromised in the same attack. So we're eating pizza tonight, so... Uh, <laughs> Whoever paid for this, I uh, guess you're getting free credit report monitoring. Yeah, I
1: guess one of our sponsors is getting a free uh, credit report monitoring tonight.
0: Actually, uh, yeah, we didn't eat at Jimmy John's, so I think we're okay. Cool. But um, <laughs> So, you got something to say, Vic?
2: Yeah, I paid with it uh, using a, a prepaid uh, debit card. <laughs> See, so look. I'm safe.
0: Yep, and we have a what financial security section uh, coming up uh, on this episode. We're going to kind of talk with Vic on some tips. Uh, however, let's continue on with the story. So uh, signature systems said we have determined that an unauthorized person gained access to a username and password that signature systems used to remotely access the POS systems and the unauthorized person used that access to install malware designed to capture payment card data from cards that were swiped through terminals in certain restaurants. The malware was capable of capturing the credit card holder's name, card number, expiry date, and verification code from the mag stripe on the card. Meanwhile, there are questions about whether Signature's core product, PDQ POS, met even the most basic security requirements set forth by the PCI Security Standards Council for point-of-sale payment systems. According to the council's records, PDQ POS was not approved for new installations after October 28, 2013. As a result, any Jimmy John stores and other affected restaurants that installed PDQ's products after October 28, 2013 sunset date could be facing fines and other penalties. You know, check your PDQs. Check you got to stay on your you got to stay on your uh P P's and Q's is that what they say? Yeah. Yeah, but the PDQs weren't on their P's and Q's. So The PDQs. Yeah, I mean, um they offloaded some of the risk to the vendors. So Therefore, you know, I think that a lot of people were saying, all right, I'm spending money. I'm spending cash on signature systems. They're taking care of it for me and I don't have to worry about it. Well, not in this situation, not in this situation, because, you know, if you pay for a service, you're ultimately responsible for that service. Even if, you know, you have to have that SLA and that contract and that predefined agreement between you and the vendor to establish the responsibilities. That is key.
1: It's part of the risk transfer transaction, I guess you could
0: say. For sure.
1: So, um, a few days ago, the internet community was shocked by the revelation of a new critical flaw dubbed Bash Bug, which affects the Bash component in billions of Unix and Linux systems worldwide. Apple, after a rapid verification, released an official statement to reassure its Mac OS X users. The company declared that the vast majority of Mac computers are not at risk from the Bash Bug, a.k.a. The Shell Shock Bug. The vast majority of OS X users are not at risk to recently reported Bash vulnerabilities, states the Apple public statement. Bash, a Unix command shell and language included in OS X, has a weakness that could allow unauthorized users to remotely gain control of vulnerable systems. With OS X, systems are safe by default and not exposed to remote exploits of Bash unless users configure advanced Unix services. We are working to quickly provide a software update for our advanced Unix users," states the company announcement. Resuming, the majority of Apple OS X users were considered to be safe by the company so long as they haven't configured any advanced access to their systems. The statement was criticized by IT security community due to the false sense of security he gave to the Mac OS X users, because their systems were anyway vulnerable to the Bash bug. The shellshock patch arrived. September 29th evening, and the updates are available for the following OS versions. OSX Lion, Mountain Lion, and Mavericks. Unfortunately, threat actors, just after the disclosure of the Shellshock, were trying to exploit Bash Bug Flaw, scanning of the entire internet to identify vulnerable machines and run the exploits. The security firm Encapsula reported that in a 12-hour period, its systems recorded 725 attacks, originated from 400 unique IP addresses, mainly located in the U.S. and China, per hour against a total of 1,800 domains. This is pretty high for a single vulnerability, Tim Matthews, Vice President of Marketing at Encapsula said. In the four days that have passed since the Shellshock vulnerability disclosure, Encapsula's web application firewall has deflected over 217,000 exploit attempts on over 4,115 domains. During this period, the average attack rate has nearly doubled, climbing to over 1970 attacks per hour. As of this time, Encapsula's system has documented shell shock attacks originating from over 890 offending IPs worldwide. Also, experts at AlienVault confirmed that the disclosure of the flaw has triggered numerous attacks. The team is running a new module in their honeypots to track the attempts exploiting the shell shock bug and in just 24 hours they detected several hits. The majority of attacks is scanning the internet simple sending a ping command back to the attackers machine. The experts also detected two attackers that are exploiting the shell shock flaw to serve and install two different strains of malware on the victims. The majority of the attacks aim to gain shell on a vulnerable machine in order to hijack it, according to data provided by Encapsula. Nearly 18.37% of the attacks are attempts to establish, establish remote access and use it to hijack the server. Hmm. That's what they do anyway. Meanwhile, um, DDoS malware accounts are at 16.6, 16.64%. So
0: In retrospect, don't uh, waste time. Yeah. Update, update that system. your system. <laughs> yep, update your system. So if you have updates out there, let's go ahead and use them. So uh, let's segue into another story. Uh, I think it was last week we talked about Windows 10, right? Windows 9, Windows 10. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are just, I mean, I think it was alleged to be Windows 10 or Windows 9. They're calling it Windows 10. So in San Francisco, and remember, the Trust and Computing Division is gone right they were downsizing that so now they're pushing out um, windows 10 so microsoft introduced windows 10 here on tuesday as a successor to windows eight with an emphasis on going back to basics the operating system formerly codenamed threshold is still in its very early stages but redmond has built enough new features into its prototype all device software platforms to generate some buzz those include a revamped start menu some smooth new multitasking tools a better modern app display parameters for full-screen PCs and from a technical perspective the most interesting addition is probably the virtual desktops which lets you run the independent partition desktops at the same time to keep business separate from pleasure for example or development production you know you you have a lot of things you can do a test you know, you can do a push to develop whatever you want to do. It, it's you know, you have a mixture there, and it looks like um, this was by PC Mag. They got a chance to tool around a bit, um, kind of mess around a bit with Windows 10 at a Microsoft small press gathering, but they also got some eyes on demos from uh, the Microsoft reps, and uh, you know, we'll kind of give you impressions from a, a PC Mag point of view. So. The important thing to know is that this isn't a finished operating system. Windows 10 and its current incarnation isn't even the beginning of the end of the beginning of what will eventually load into our PCs, tablets, and other devices sometime in mid-2015. Microsoft is releasing what it calls a uh, technical review or technical preview build on Wednesday. That bare bones version of what will eventually become Windows 10 will be available to the public for download at preview.windows.com. The idea here is to get Windows users, and crucially for Redmond's at this stage, its enterprise customers, to test out the new software and tick off boxes for what they like and don't like about it. One Microsoft rep told PCMag, it would be the biggest experiment ever in crowdsourcing an OS build, which will, let's say, it'd be fun to hear... uh, Linus Torvald's response to that claim, right? So, at any rate, this process will be the new experience for Microsoft, and the software giant is betting big on the Windows 10 as a first major iteration of its one Microsoft initiative to produce a single OS that works across all devices, which was first championed last year by former CEO Steve Ballmer. So, Windows 10 will be the software platform for not just PCs and tablets, but also for smartphones wearables internet of things devices entertainment consoles and embedded systems to be clear that doesn't mean there will be one vanilla flavor of windows 10 that works across all the those devices but the basic platform will be relatively easy to tweak and create vision different versions that do windows 10 will be one product family with a tailored experience for each device that was um, from uh, terry myerson the executive vice president of microsoft operating systems group he wrote that in a blog post so old is the new windows for now the flavor we have played around with is uh windows 10 for the pc specifically a version that is aimed at microsoft's enterprise customers according to many early returns including those of uh matt murray and microsoft's todd swank um our Microsoft partner Todd Swank of uh, ECIS Computer Systems. The promise of a return to the traditional Windows UI is big, big news. Uh, Mag is also in that camp. They messed around with the early Windows 10 build. The refurbished start menu is like having an old friend back on the screen but they also appreciated the way that the live tile experience was still easily accessible and how app browsing launch and launching can now be conducted with a more, let's say, traditional windows feel. PC Mag was also a fan of how Microsoft has brought the decades-old alt tab command to the forefront, leveraging a long-standing tool of Windows power users to make cleaning up and quickly getting a read on the desktop full of open applications a lot easier and more intuitive. Another cool multitasking tool that should uh, boost productivity in Windows 10 is something called Snap Assist which lets you snap up to four apps at once to get suggestions for other open apps that may help you with a given task. Seeing virtual desktops in action, well, Mag said, it's not like fireworks going off or anything, but the integrations of these kind of security and management layers into the Windows OS are clearly aimed at Microsoft business partners like Swank, the Senior Director of Marketing at um, or Product Marketing at Ekis. It's not clear... That the new stab at the desktop virtualization will be a hit. However, Microsoft's existing VDI product is a bit unwieldy for the small to mid sized businesses like uh, the Minnetonka, which is a Minnesota based systems integrator serves, he said. Ahead of Tuesday's announcement, Swank told PC Mag he thought Windows has been extremely reactionary for the last three or so years following the herd as the BYOD movement heated up and mobile devices supplanted PCs as consumer favorites. Um, He says, uh, he's asked them straight, why do you abandon your Windows 7 marketing and make Windows 8 entirely a consumer thing? But, at least getting back to keyboard and mouse basics with the desktop PC version of Windows 10 is a step in the right direction, according to Swank. More importantly, Opening the development process to partners like Ecos and other elements of Redmond's vast ecosystem is encouraging. Microsoft needs to get back to that. To enabling the little guy to build successful products off of their platform. Like the App Store is for Apple developers. Like building websites with Google Ads. It's time they go back to being a platform company. That was also said by Swank. Another thing to like about Windows 10, which Murray also highlighted is that Microsoft seems committed truly tailoring Windows 10 to different screen sizes and devices types instead of trying to fit the touch-based tablet UI experience you know that we all see and it's like, hey, what's going on? Onto that desktop, which is what happened with Windows 8. PC Mag will report back with more Windows 10 news in the coming weeks. I'm, you know, guys, I'm very excited to see this. Um, I think, Vic, in, in your segment that we had uh, on our first episode... You kind of remarked that Windows was your thing.
1: Yeah, because you do a lot of business stuff
0: with it. You do a and lot of business. Primarily because it
1: was um, the platform when they first started out.
0: That's what everybody used. You know, that was it. So how do you feel about uh, Windows X, Windows 10? How do you feel about that?
2: Well, let's see. I've seen Windows grow from what was the first version? three dot, Was it like 3.1? Windows? Yeah, 3.1 was the first one. one. Yeah, Yeah, that that was the first one. DOS to PC tools to Windows 3.1, and I've gone through all the operating systems. Uh, I'll be honest with you, maybe I'm getting older. Um, I'm just looking for speed. You know, when you open up a Word document, it should open up pretty fast. Uh, It It should do what you want it to do, right? It should do what you want it to do, and it shouldn't take so long. I, I just feel like the newer operating systems... Especially Windows, it seems like the newer ones, they come out and it loads a lot more into memory. You see hard
0: drives running a lot longer. Absolutely. I mean, it it really kind of takes away from the user experience when it takes a very long time for a document, you know, a spreadsheet, PowerPoint, something to open up and really allow you to edit it and make modifications to it. Also, I think the user experience the navigation you know with when Windows eight came out, I'll let you know you know i was I was kind of let down
1: yeah, I was too I'm not a big fan of that one.
0: I was a Windows seven fan. I loved it the start button was there yep. and you know it kind of built off of Windows XP which and Windows Vista, which what is that one? <laughs> I know <laughs> right it kind of yeah, we kind of <laughs> kind of jumped over that one, right but with Windows seven, I was really a fan. A lot of people are still adopting XP. I think I saw a report where users are still using XP, you know, given that support and stuff is going down, you know, it actually it's offline, so...
2: I think it's still reliable and it works.
0: I, I still have a
2: Windows XP laptop that I use. Um, not. It's more for troubleshooting. It, it's just easy to load. Um, there's not... There's not too many well I wanna say moving parts. It's just easy to navigate it's through. Yeah. And it's With easy the newer to ones, through. they change. Everything changes and
0: you have to search for everything. It's kinda of like you know, when you go to Google and you try to search for something, that's what it's like. You have to go and search for the application that you want to use. I think it's gonna be interesting seeing this new desktop environment, the snap tiles and things that they're introducing here. It sounds pretty cool. Sounds pretty cool. We'll see what happens. Um So, yeah, we'll keep you guys apprised on uh, Windows 10 with what's coming out.
2: Well, I'd like to add, too, you know, as I mentioned, maybe I'm getting set in my ways. I I moved over to uh, Mac a few years ago, and I'll be honest with you. I mean, I have it in front of me right now. I still have a problem trying to figure out how to navigate sometimes through or look yeah, for something. Yeah, because you have to use the launch pad. You yeah, have to Finder use... Finder seems to be my friend because I can't ever navigate where I need to. And in, in Windows, it just seemed my my, it was my brain intuitive. was just kind of, it was ingrained in my DNA because I kind of grew up with it.
0: You were dreaming in Windows menus. <laughs> right, I was. <laughs> right?
2: Well, actually, I, I, you know, when uh, Windows came out, I was a big DOS person. And even when Windows came out, I remember hitting the command line and I still did everything in the DOS prompt so it took yep, me a Power little shell. while. Yeah, and I knew uh I know this sounds silly but and I'm probably dating myself but I remember the the dial-ups, the 2400
0: baud modems. Hold on. I mean, we have what, a 56k? I think we have a 56k at the beginning of every show. <laughs> all you listeners, you're like <laughs> dialing in, you're popping in the uh, AOL disk that we all, you know, have as coasters now. <laughs> You know what I mean. So, it, that's the old trusted and true. A lot of people still use that. So we can kind of equate the uh, we kind of could kind of equate Windows Seven and XP to that old car that you never get rid of. That's a beater. You know what I mean. It's it's going to work. You know it's going to start up. It's going to get you where it need where you need to be. It may, it may not be flashy, but at the end of the day, it's going to get the job done. I hopefully that Windows Ten will merge that.
2: Yeah, that'll be my nineteen ninety three Honda Civic.
0: (laughs) Or you could, yeah, you could say something like that. Absolutely, but that was Windows XP. Now we're trying to get you into a Tesla, right? So, uh, and yeah, that was a shout out to Tesla. You know, we could use three of them, right? (laughs) You know, I wouldn't turn them down. So, um, we have an another uh, story, right, Nick?
1: Oh, this one I thought was uh, pretty interesting. It's hackers getting arrested for cracking. A U.S. Army network.
0: Uh Uh-oh. Get into it.
1: (laughs) So four members of an international hacking ring were charged with cracking the networks of the U.S. Army and developers of blockbuster war video games to steal software, prosecutors said. Two of the men entered guilty pleas in the case, which centers on the cyber theft of at least $100 million worth of software and data, according to the Justice Department. The hackers are accused of breaking into programs used for the Army's Apache helicopter pilot training, Microsoft's Xbox One consoles and yet-to-be-released video games Gears of War 3 and Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3. Those charged in the case teamed with others in the US and abroad to hack into networks of Microsoft, Epic Games, Valve Corporation, and the US Army according to the indictment. Members of this international hacking ring stole trade secret data used in high-tech American products Ranging from software that trains U.S. soldiers to fly Apache helicopters to Xbox games that entertain millions around the world, Assistant Attorney General Leslie Caldwell said. An indictment returned in April, and unsealed Tuesday charged the four with conspiracy to commit computer fraud, theft of trade secrets, and other offenses. Additionally, an Australian citizen has been charged under Australian law for his alleged role in the conspiracy, officials said, without identifying the suspect. Officials said two pleaded guilty in a Delaware federal court to some of the charges and are scheduled for sentencing on January 13th. David Pecora, 22, of Canada, was arrested on March 28th at the U.S.-Canada border in Lewiston, New York. Officials said Pekora is believed to be the first person based outside the United States convicted of hacking into US businesses to steal trade secret information. According to the indictment, the group hacked into networks to steal the source code, technical specs and related information for Microsoft's then unreleased Xbox One gaming console and other proprietary data related to the online gaming platform Xbox Live. Other trade secrets stolen were from the Apache helicopter simulator software developed by Zombie Studios for the US Army and a pre-release version of Epic's video game Gears of War 3. The value of the stolen intellectual property and other losses was estimated between 100 million and 200 million dollars. That's a lot of money. Officials said they had seized over $620,000 in cash and proceeds from the suspects. This case is being investigated by the FBI with the assistance from the Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, and in coordination with the Western Australian Police and the Peel Regional Police of Ontario, Canada. That's a lot of money. That is a ton of money. Holy cow.
0: And now let's get into our our segue straight into our uh, tech segment. So... The first story I want to cover this week um, in our tech segment is uh, vulnerabilities found in wireless thermostats. Ooh, that sounds chilling. Yep. So, like Nest and some other things, right? Very popular. It you know you can control your house via wireless from anywhere. You can like the smart homes. Smart homes, exactly. You can install an application on your phone and have it tied back directly to your thermostat through port forwarding and things like that and control the uh, you know what degree it is in the house, kick on the AC, kick on the heat, things like that. So Wi-Fi thermostats developed by UK based company Heatmiser are plagued by several vulnerabilities that can be exploited remotely by a malicious attacker. A researcher reported this on Saturday. So Andrew Tierney revealed on his blog Cyber Gibbons what in the gibbons?com that at least nine security issues have been found in HeatMiser Wi-Fi thermostats. The researcher began analyzing devices after coming across a blog post detailing several vulnerabilities found in a discontinued model. The wireless thermostats produced by HeatMiser can be controlled remotely from a web browser via mobile apps or you know or a web browser or mobile apps by forwarding two ports within the user's router to the device and the recommended ports are you guessed it 80 for web control and 8068 for the mobile apps while this enables customers to remotely control their heating system it also exposes them to cyber attacks the expert noted that port 8068 is mostly used for these devices so identifying ones accessible from the internet is not a difficult task A quick search performed by the researcher using Shodan, so Shodan HQ. We all know, you know, it's a it's a great resource to find out, hey, what's vulnerable, things like that. It it uh, correlates all the data for you, does data analytics, things like that. That search engine revealed that there are roughly seven thousand accessible thermostats.
1: Wait a minute, that are wireless?
0: Yes. Holy cow! That are broadcasting this eighty sixty eight. Port. Wow. Yeah, pretty serious stuff. So the first flaw identified by Tyranny is that the web interface for configuring the thermostats has a default username-password combination, namely admin-admin, right? Hey, that's the same stuff that's on my router. I know. I have it written on a napkin here. That's <laughs> how you get into my computer, right? Admin-admin. <laughs> or you can make a password123. <laughs> Furthermore, the default pin required to access the system from a smartphone or tablet is, you can guess this one, right, Nick? The same thing that's on my luggage? One, two, three, four. Oh, man. Even if this pin is changed by the user, because there is no rate limiting or locking out on port 8068, an attacker could easily perform a brute force attack. Oh, wow. Considering that there are only 9,999 combinations. So they could just sit there and hit
1: it, bang, 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 and it'll never stop. One, 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 one,
0: one, 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 two, one, 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 three. So you can do all that. Another serious problem... ...is that when someone is logged into a device, they can easily access information such as user, pass, Wi-Fi SSID, and Wi-Fi password. All of this data is available in plain text, which is in a form. The researcher also discovered that while user input is validated and sanitized, this is done so by a piece of JavaScript code and not by the device itself. This allows the attacker to pass the malicious data by sending requests through a custom client instead of a web browser. Wi-Fi thermostat from HeatMizer are also vulnerable to cross-site request forgery, which we talked about earlier in the show, CSRF. And uh, to give you guys, our listeners, a little bit, guys and gals, our listeners, a little bit of background, according to OWASP, a CSRF attack which forces an end user to execute unwanted actions on a web application, which is currently authenticated. With a little help of social engineering, like, you know, uh, sending a link via email chat, an attacker can trick the users of a web application in executing actions of an attacker's choosing. A successful CSRF exploit can comprise end-user data and operation in the case of a normal user. If a target end-user is the administrator account, this can compromise the entire web application, which is not good, right? So, the researcher also said, I can send a user a link containing a malicious request and the device will blindly carry it out. For example, I could send a request to change the password to one of my choosing in an email and as long as the user is logged into the thermostat recently, the request will be carried out by that device. Furthermore, authentication works only based on IP. This means that anyone using the same IP address as the device's owner can access the thermostat simply by visiting its administrator's page without the need for the login credits. The expert has also found that commands to the thermostat can be carried out by sending HTTP POST requests to it, no authentication required. The authentication method itself is highly insecure because it is based in JS, JavaScript, which allows an attacker to easily view sensitive information, including the login password. The problem is that even if these vulnerabilities are addressed in the firmware, a firmware update requires a special programmer for HeatMiser, and the process involves taking the device apart and accessing special ports inside the device. <laughs> wow. Tierney reported his findings to Miser, which has promised to provide customers with an update to address the vulns. While it's working on the fix, the company said as it started uh, contacting its customers and advising them to close port 80 on their thermostat. Interestingly, though, Tierney is not the first researcher to find issues in Wi-Fi thermostats from HeatMiser. In Jan 2013, Gene Lewis Persat, or Persat, reported similar vulnerabilities to the company, but his notification had not been taken seriously. So this is key to individuals listening. You are the trusted security advisor for people inside your family. They're going to ask you, hey, am I vulnerable? Absolutely. I mean, yes. in this case, you have to make sure that the basic security steps are, are taken. Changing default username pass, making sure that this is, goes for Wi-Fi devices as well. The Wi-Fi uh, WPS, right, which is that Wi-Fi protected setup, disable that. There are applications such as Reaver and things like that that can find those pins, sniff those pins out, and it can be used against a device. All the basics should be changed, um, but Heatmiser definitely has to step up to the plate because this is going to require a firmware update which requires physical access to the device. This is crazy. That is crazy. So, we'll keep you guys apprised of what's going on. Um, there was also a there was a presentation at Defcon 22 when I attended. I believe that they hacked a great number of advice devices within 60 seconds. I think it was like 40 devices in 60 seconds. All wireless? All wireless. Well, actually it was a, it was smart TV, um, it was smart TVs, any photo frames? I don't think so. I don't think they've cracked into that market yet. But anything that connects to the network can be exploited. So either way we'll post uh I'll also post that information from DEF CON on there so you listeners can kinda look at that, but definitely be on the lookout if you have one of these thermostats. You know? Hey, fire up a packet capture. You know? Check out what's going on across the network. It's always good to know. You good know, stuff, you, good stuff. Absolutely. What do you have for us?
2: Fire up a packet capture for your uh, heating and uh, air conditioning needs. What do you think about that?
0: So, I mean, we're talking with the exploits and, you know, disclosures of exploits to vendors. That's a hot topic, right? Right, Vic?
2: Yeah, I don't understand. Shouldn't some of these vendors, like, pay a reward if somebody finds an exploit? You know, they could... Save the you know company a lot of money from embarrassment if they just give a reward before it gets exploited.
1: Yeah, you know we we talked about that in uh, was one it, of Twitter? our Twitter.
0: Twitter had a bug bounty program. Yeah, I think
1: Twitter has one
0: where it wasn't a firm fixed price per exploit. They actually looked at the exploit and said, "All right, how is this going to affect our business? How is this going to affect our process? All right, we'll we'll compensate you accordingly." You're right, but some of these individuals that are, you know, white hats, gray hats, even black hats out there, you have talent across the spectrum. Some people, you know, they say, okay, I can create a root kit. I can create X, Y, and Z based upon an exploit. They're going to get more money on the underground releasing it there rather than exposing it or, you know, um, kind of showing the vulnerability to the vendor. There definitely has to be, some open form of communication and compensation accordingly based upon the exploit that has to happen in the industry. Otherwise, these things are going to go, quote-unquote, undetected by commercial AV signatures, open source AV signatures that are out there, or, you know, HID signatures, whatever the case is, unless they're disclosed and the the vendor has the ability and the chance to patch it.
1: You know, that's right, Matt. And just imagine if... Um one of these people got a hold of these Heat Miser things and um, wrote the code for it. You're looking at sort of like a mini SCADA attack, because you could heat somebody's ha- house up really, really hot, burn some stuff up
0: maybe. You could you could turn it up to you know 90 degrees, whatever the case is, or turn it down. Um, there's a lot of things you can do. If you can control the environmental variables or something, what it kind of strikes a chord with me is if you have a lab or something of that magnitude... Where you have a computer room AC unit, or you have something of you know great magnitude to your business, I mean even you could have people with medical issues that are inside the business. Oh yeah, definitely. You know what I mean? Or inside the house. Or inside the house, you turn it up. That's a, that's a safety issue. That's a you know physical safety issue. Or it could be you know if you're using one of these wireless devices, which you shouldn't be. I mean, small and mid-sized business, you put a server where you need to put a server. If you can t- turn up and crank up the heat that's a denial of service, right? Oh, if you can heat I that would up enough. I say so, yeah. So you have to look at you know the, the physical location and address these vulnerabilities accordingly.
2: Well, I would like to add, I wish somebody out there would develop a hack that would save me money on my electric bill because it seems to be through the roof.
0: All right, so this has been a widely debated topic and I actually think somebody did successfully exploit their power meter because the way the energy companies used to do it is they used to walk up, and physically, it was either through it was uh, a,
2: infrared. It was a ta- like a tag? Yeah, infrared. They would
0: tag that system, but there was, you know, you can kind of see, if you look at your power meter, it flashes through different numbers, and there's two IR sensors on there. Well, they would take their reader and get a physical reading off of it. Now, I think, you know, they may be, some of them may be networked, right but not all of them most definitely especially if the, the power company said to me hey i have a device can i hook it to your wireless network
2: <laughs> i would say no uh, no
0: <laughs> so um but they have like peak rewards and some things oh, yeah, yeah. where they can remotely control your thermostat and things like that so who knows and and quote unquote save you money and save you money but you raise a good point if somebody could come up with an exploit that saves people money or possibly increases the cost that becomes a huge issue, right? So we'll look at that. If I if I find something, because I do vaguely remember this being briefed at um, one of the events I've been at, we'll post it on the show notes and, and have you guys do that. With talking about exploits, um, is there anything further you want to add, Vic?
2: Well, I mean, Miser was one company that was probably targeted. I mean, there's lots of wireless devices out there. There's that group of hackers or that hacker – when after a heat miser, I mean, there's lots of wireless devices I've gone through that only have four-character passwords and and whatnot, and so
0: even yeah. in the firmware. So um, in Defcon, when they gave the presentation, uh, what was it? 40 devices in 60 seconds. <coughs> I'm trying to find it now, um, but they had shown that in the um, in the firmware they had default user credentials, right? which is something in firmware that goes out with every device that's coming out of the assembly line. That's a huge huge vulnerability.
2: I mean even like uh when Wi-Fi was uh popular, a lot of people got the wireless routers. I remember sitting in my in my bedroom and I would see like 16 of my neighbors all had didn't have passwords and then I, mean, I was even thinking at that time like you you know hit google and, and they all have the default passwords you can go in and change it if you get a hooked up with an ip address <laughs> you know what's funny when we uh, moved into our our, hi-
1: our house a couple years ago it took um the cable providers quite a while to come out and my wife was finishing her master's degree and our neighbors next door had a wide open um uh access point and
2: we used it yeah and uh well i'd like to add i i know that that sounds funny um one uh, uh i have my brother lives in my neighborhood he's about you know two or three hundred yards away and we uh when we both moved in the neighborhood we were thinking to uh have like a, uh, one of the extenders so we could just share the internet cost <laughs> yeah just uh, like a directional antenna or something uh, just pointing over
0: uh, into uh yeah you can do oh, high, one of the high
2: gains yeah. I, I know you can do it i just we never went went that route but uh yeah there's all kinds of things i mean uh i've seen some uh buildings share one internet connection to the whole building i don't know the legalities and how that all evolves but you know there's and there's many devices that
0: aren't wireless so as so as as the consumer there is no expectation of privacy if i'm using a network right hmm? so if i'm using an open network that i haven't secured and somebody else is providing that for me my expectation of privacy has diminished however there should be some vendor responsibility same thing can be said for hotels i mean when i went to defcon 22 when i went to shmoocon when we go to the different conferences we're going to you know i i'm very weary to use the hotel internet just because i'm used to being at home
1: oh absolutely
0: i know how i have it set up i know how i have it configured i actually have multiple networks at home they're all hidden they're all you know i have th- the maximum level of security i can put on them but convenience and security there's a paradigm shift oh so, matt uh-oh. i think our time's up yep it's about that time so um thank you all for joining us for uh, number 5 this has been it's, great. there's a huge milestone for us, and uh, glad you listeners can be out there. We're looking like we have 500 total listeners, a little over that, actually, um, over 2,000 views, so please come back next week. Do we have some shout-outs for the week?
1: Yeah, I'd like to give a shout-out to Clay and the crew at Great Lakes, including Paiuchi, who's looking into jobs in the D.C. area. So,
0: Paiucci! what's up, guys? Paiuchi! Yep, so... Uh
1: On Thursday, October 16th, Matt will be presenting at the ISC squared Baltimore chapter. And that will be on
0: IAS, PAS, SAS, making sense of it all, uh, demystifying cloud. So we're going to introduce some security concepts and things like that from a cloud perspective. The 17th through the 19th of October, we'll be at B-Sides DC. Shout out to B-Sides DC. Thank you so much. Thank you, B-Sides. For making it a possibility for us to be there. We can't wait to uh, meet y'all in person. Um, 21 October through 23rd October, We'll be at ISSA Orlando, the ISSA International Conference. That's going to be awesome. And then um, 29th through the 30th, we're going to be at Cyber Maryland in Baltimore. So come uh, check us out. Come come check us out. Say hi. Don't be a stranger. Um, And uh, can't wait to talk to you all in the next one. Have a good one.